Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Well, welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. Today we have Wilfred Emmanuel Jones out of the UK. He's a British businessman and founder of the popular brand, The Black Farmer, uh, an agricultural brand who we're going to hear all about how he got there. So Wilfred, do you mind giving us just a, a kind of a quick background about what it is that you do at this current point? Well, first of all, hello. And um, it's it's nice to be um, speaking to you. Um, and um, in terms of telling you my story, it's perhaps best if I start from the beginning. I was actually born in the Caribbean, in, in Jamaica, in fact, uh, in a place called Clarendon. And um, for those of you who don't know the island, it is, it's right in the heart of Jamaica, quite rural. So if you went there today, for example, you'd see quite a lot of um, subsistence farmers actually working the land. Okay. And my parents, during the 50s, um, joined that great wave of um, immigration to the UK. So there was an opportunity for people in the Commonwealth to to come to Britain um, to better their lives. And uh, one of the things that I... I always look back on is the fact that it was quite an entrepreneurial thing for them to have done to actually leave the your place of birth leave everything that you know behind to not only better your life but to better your children's life Uh, yeah yeah that's interesting i don't know that i've uh heard you know immigration considered an entrepreneurial activity but i like it i like it a lot i just think that's we tend to forget that because for as many people who do it, most people will stay behind. So it really means that there is an entrepreneurial spirit running through my DNA, if it's, as it were, but it's probably invisible. And, and in a sense, any migrant um, doing that, it's someone who is driven to change their circumstances. And yeah. um, as in my parents' case, and that would apply to all um, immigrants, is that when they came to um, the UK, what they then discovered was very different from what they imagined. What they imagined was that they were going to be welcomed and that it was going to be a land paved with gold. But actually what they found was racism and poverty, cold, and uh, everything that they imagined just wasn't there. Wow. Where they were, uh, my father especially, um, had some position in um, Jamaican society. When they came to UK, he was at the bottom of the pile. Interesting. So, you know, as you're talking and I'm thinking about this idea of immigration as entrepreneurship, you know, I'm thinking that's kind of, that's kind of, it's not as, as dramatic, but that's kind of the way of a lot of entrepreneurs, right? They, they think they're going to get one thing. And then they go out into the entrepreneurship space and they find that it's not nearly as rosy as maybe they had hoped. But but yeah, I mean, not nearly to the degree that you're explaining, obviously. Interesting. Please continue. Yeah. but And I think the, the reason why um, entrepreneurs are very, very good 
is that it's not really about coming up with a great idea, in fact. It's all about how do you manage in this world of uncertainty. I think what is fascinating for me is that most people try and create certainty around them. I don't know why they do, because there's one thing about the human condition that we should all come to terms with by now, is that you know, part of being human is living with uncertainty. Oh, yeah. It's just absolutely fascinating how everyone really tries and create the certainty around them. And then, well, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we so we talk about uh, the art of strategic reaction. And, and the reason we use the word reaction is because it's gotten such a bad rap out there. But as you talk about, we live in a, a world of uncertainty. So the vast majority of the stuff we do is actually a reaction to something. And so we feel like it's kind of gotten this bad rap of not being reactive when no matter how proactive you try to be, there's we live in this really complex, messy world that you're going to have to react to. So that's good. I like that. But what happens is that so much money, so much time and so much effort is spent on trying to create certainty Whereas, in fact, I think people will be better served in, in fact, how to um, live with uncertainty, to see uncertainty as a friend rather than an enemy. But I sort of digress from my sort of personal story. So if I... No worries, no worries. If, if, if I go back to that, my parents um, moved from Jamaica to um, Birmingham, and uh, not Birmingham, Alabama, but Birmingham in, in, in the West. Oh, sure. And um, that was a place where a lot of immigrants went because that is where the work was. It was it's very much a sort of industrial. Well, at that time, it was a very much an industrial town full of either the Irish, Pakistanis or, or Caribbean, because that's where the factory work was and a lot of manual work. And, OK. Um, and so what tended to happen, what happened back in those days is that my parents arrived still with the ideas of that they brought from the Caribbean, i.e. having a large family. I'm from a family of nine brothers and sisters. So oh, wow. My parents, there were 11 of us. Now, 11 people living in a, a place in the Caribbean is a lot easier than 11 people living in a terrace house in Birmingham. And it was a struggle. It was an wow. absolute struggle. So the things that I remember from my childhood was that we were poor. And like any immigrant, you start at the bottom. You know, sometimes I describe it to society's dustbin heap. You start where no one else wants to be, no one else wants to do the work, and that's where you, you, you start. And um, I can remember um, as a way of supplementing the family income, my father had an allotment. And I don't know whether in America you know what allotment is, but it is a sort of, it's a piece of land that you could um, rent and then grow your own vegetables uh, on it. And obviously for my father, that would A, be a reminder of what it was like back in Jamaica, but more practically, it then also supplemented the family income. Okay, so so this was part of kind of a social program for uh, you know people who needed uh, financial support in some way. No, 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 no. Anybody, anyone, even today, anyone, okay. whatever color skin you know, if you live in the city and you want to rent a piece of land, they're called allotments here. You probably have another name for them in in the U.S. But sure. anybody who likes to grow things could hire a piece of land from the local authority. So it's not a social program. It's just okay. 
just the people who, who are keen gardeners. Now, it's quite important, this part of the story, really, because I can remember, as the eldest boy, it was my responsibility to look after this allotment, do all the watering, do all the weeding, to keep on top of it. And I absolutely loved being on this allotment. Um, when I was living in my house, it was a typical urban jungle. Um, there was no greenery. It was just, it was pretty horrid. And I could remember at the age of 11, 11 years old, I made myself a promise that one day I would buy my own farm. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I enjoyed being in that space so much, I knew that that is what I wanted to do. And that was at the age of 11. Wow. And I do a lot of these talks around the country to young people, especially. And I say, look, it is really, really important that you have a dream. Now, unlike the US, in um, the UK, when you start talking about having a dream, the British people tend to be quite cynical of that sort of notion. But oh, really? I'm an absolute fundamental believer is that part of being able to um, change your circumstances is that you have to have the courage to have that dream. And, you know, for anyone who finds themselves in a, a situation where they don't want to be, the first thing you have to do is imagine that, imagine yourself out of that situation, i.e. the ability to dream that it can be different. The people who don't move on are the people who don't have the ability to dream that it can be different. Whether, oh, I love it. Whether that's, whether that, and so, you know, whether that was the, you know, you find yourself in a prison, you find yourself in real deprivating circumstances the people who move on and survive it are the people who can see it see that it could be different they could see a different place the ones who accept it and see that that is their fate are the ones who then get trapped by it it becomes their prison and so it is really really important to have a dream because by having that dream and it took me 30 years, by the way, to go from having that dream to eventually getting the position to buy my farm. But that so you didn't you didn't just go from being an 11 year old with a dream to own a farm right into owning a farm when you were in your 20s or something. No, didn't happen that way. And what happened? It was that dream that always eventually steered me into the direction of owning a farm. Because um, it may be the same thing in your country as it is in here, as it is in the UK, but farms tend to be handed down from family to family, and therefore they stay within their family for generations. If you're an immigrant and you're new to that country, unless you've got lots of money, um, you're starting with nothing, and therefore you've either got to make a lot of money to be able to buy land, or you know get somebody to sort of rent it um, to you. Yeah. Okay. So that was that. That was. I can remember even. I'm in my sixties now, and I can remember that feeling and that desire at the age of eleven to own my own farm. And everything that I did always drove me into that sort of direction. So I say, did you, did you sense at that age, you know, any level of kind of despair? I mean, knowing that either the farm had to be handed down to you, or that you were going to have to come up with. Um, a big portion of money. Was there ever a sense of 
despair or uncertainty around if you could achieve the goal? Well, my whole life was that of despair and uncertainty. You know, that's what I grew up in, is that, you know, if you're on society's dustbin heap, there is nowhere else to go. And so to a certain extent, I think that I'm pretty lucky because I, I had nothing to lose. And therefore, everything that I did was always moving forward. And um, I knew what it was like to have nothing. I knew what it was like to have despair. And it's a very uh, amazing place to be because you then really do focus on what is important and um, and not get trapped by what I call the white noise of, of, of living and surviving. And I think what is really interesting is that most people fill their lives with the white noise of living. Distractions, things that are not really relevant to their lives, is just a way of avoiding being focused. And, and one of the things that I've always been very good at is to be ruthlessly focused on what I want. That's why you need to have a dream. And it always focuses you to what you actually want rather than expecting things to happen or um, putting everything down to fate. fate yeah, it reminds me, um, uh, there was a talk I heard once where they talked about um, an older gentleman who had lost some of his physical uh, faculties. And they asked him, you know, how do you, how do you react? What do you do when you can't do the things that you've done your whole life? And he said, uh, when you can't do what you've always done, you only do what matters most. Yeah. And, uh, and it sounds like there's a similar um, kind of dynamic to, to being without, right? Well, if yeah. you can't do all the things that everybody else is doing, you really focus in on those things that matter most. Well, I mean, what I was going to tell you um, in, about my story is that recently I had um, a, acute myeloid leukemia and I nearly died. I was in hospital for a year as they battled to save my life. Oh, my goodness. And um, I had to have a stem cell transplant and I'm now three years on. And there is nothing more than knowing that you are potentially going to die that absolutely gets you to focus on what matters. And what is fascinating, in a sense, the gift of that sort of crisis is that it really focuses the mind of what is important. And you'd be amazed how much rubbish we surround ourselves with. And that the man, we all know we're going to die, but it's back of mind. The thing what happens when you have a serious illness is that it becomes front of mind and it absolutely focuses on what matters. And really, when it comes down to it, there's not many things that matter. I think that's the great thing. Very, very few things matter. And if we can focus our lives on those very few things, A, we'll be happier and B, we will have a sense of fulfilling our potential. So I'm a great believer in that. I would just like people to get to that point rather than getting that point when they've got some sort of near-death experience to get them there. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that's so aligned with what we talk about in terms of a strategic reaction. It, it really is focusing on the things that matter most instead of yeah. you know, getting distracted by your pride or you, know, you have these conversations or these experiences that frustrate you or upset you or touch your pride. Mm -hmm. And then you react emotionally to something that ultimately doesn't matter. You lose focus of those things that really matter most. So I love that. Exactly. So when I had that dream at 11, um, I went to the local school, and um, I think that in America they'd probably call the area that I grew up in was 
it's similar to what you call the sort of projects, really, where, you know, there wasn't really much um, expected from the kids who went to um, the local school. Most of those children ended up in prison, um, weren't very well educated. And I think that we were sort of policed rather than educated because there was not much sort of expected of us. And uh, there's nothing worse than being a child being brought up in a situation where, you know, you are expected to fail, that there's no aspiration. So if you could see things from my parents' perspective, they're immigrants who came to this country to try and better their lives. And what they're having to do is then to get into survival mode. And so all of those dreams and aspirations disappear as they try and survive their circumstances. And, you know, I I can remember again quite young when I decided, look, I do not want to end up like these people. And that if I do not want to end up like these people, I am going to have to change. I'm going to have to think differently, behave differently, and then start to acquire behaviors and ideas of the people that I would like to be part of. So it is like one of the things I think about um, moving forward, fulfilling your potential, is that sometimes you have to leave behind the very things that um, give you security, protection, a sense of being. You have to leave those behind so you can actually go out and um, discover who you are and be your authentic self. You can go back to them once you've acquired those things, but you need to move away because all too often people are trapped and they're left, they're held back because of the sort of the, the goalposts of familiarity, the things that give mm. them anchoring. You have to sort of let yourself go. Yeah. So, you know, What's interesting about your story is, you know, you were letting go of, of something your parents had implemented. And, and there are people who, you know, can't even let go of things they've implemented themselves, right? So I become really familiar with my own behaviors and actions, and I just latch onto those, and I can't let those go. Exactly. You're even one step before that. You're saying, I, I don't want to latch on to these things that um, aren't producing the results that I want to see that aren't even mine, necessarily. Well, exactly. And I think a lot of people are trapped by not what they want, but trapped by what other people want. Their tradition, oh, yeah. their background, their race, their religion. You know, it's not, it's, it's about when you come to really look at your authentic self, are you living your authentic self or are you living the self that you think other people want you to live? And I think if people have quiet moments and they ask themselves that real fundamental question, you'll probably see that a lot of people will need to reevaluate, re um, you know, their meaning, their purpose in life. But not many people really live their authentic self. Yeah, well, and it goes, I mean, to your case, you were, you know, going to school in a place, you were being educated by a system that was, uh, as you mentioned, expecting you to fail. So you exactly. didn't, you know, you pointed out earlier, you, you didn't have a choice. You had to change that way of thinking because the system around you was expecting you to fail. Exactly. And it is about what I call the power of the outside. I think that I've, I'm lucky. I don't know whether that is my DNA or whatever, but you know, I've always been comfortable with being the outsider. And um, you can't change. It's the outsiders who bring about change. Uh, 
Um, the most people want to keep the status quo, but the advancement of man is those of us on the outside who says, well, actually, who says we need to live by these rules? Who says that's the way things should be? It's those challengers who drive us forward as human beings. And the, the irony, again, is that most people want to um, belong rather than to be. For me, yeah. it's the be, which is the thing, because that's part of your authentic self. Belonging means you have to abide by the rules of the, of the community, the set, the group. And that, and that tends to mean keeping a status quo. It's the outside thinkers who challenge the status quo, the ones that drives us sort of forward. And therefore, that thinking came about from the day I decided I don't need to be like my parents. The general thinking would be from my friends and the rest of my family was, well, to have some sense of self and having some feeling of, of belonging, you need to abide by the rules of that group whether that's, you know, the things you were interested in, was that the way that you spoke, whether that was your aspirations. You know, people tend to be driven by the rules of the group when by saying, no, I'm not going to be driven by the rules of the group, you automatically become an outsider, you automatically on your own, and it's a lonely road to travel. And sure. Well, and you had an additional dynamic to all of this, right? You, what age were you when you were diagnosed with dyslexia? Well, I was never diagnosed with dyslexia until I was in my thirties, because um, in those days, I don't know what it's like in the the US. You know, if you didn't understand what was going on in the classroom, you were just seen as being thick. You'd been, you know, again in my school, you could imagine you were seen as being thick. I don't know if you know what the the, the yeah, yeah. means in the US, but you know, not intelligent, not very bright. And not only that, but also someone who is being difficult, you know, who is really not paying any attention. And so that is what I was seen as. And then I behaved accordingly. If you're seen to be stupid, then you behave stupidly. And if you're seen, so basically, you know, I spent all of my life being ashamed of the fact that I couldn't do basic things like spelling simple four-letter words and therefore having to carry that shame around for all of my life and then trying to come up with clever ways to um, um, hide behind that. And the thing that I look back now and think, my God, you know, the amount of energy and time I wasted because I was trying to cover up that shame if I had used that energy in something more positive, I could achieve even greater success. And the wow. irony is this, is that it's only because I became successful that I then felt able to admit that shame. And um, I'm now trying to help a lot of people. Because what I also discovered is that actually um, this lecture is not something to be ashamed of. It is a gift. It is a gift because it means that you view the world differently. So therefore, because you don't have the sort of the normal educational tools to um, problem solve, you come from it from a totally different perspective. So some of the yeah. creative people will have some form of dyslexia. Um, well, I think just the, the very premise that, you know, some of these things that we, we classify as disabilities are the very things that that 
like you said, help us see the world differently and come up with different solutions that we wouldn't otherwise. Exactly. So it's about, you know, the blue sky thinkers. And so for anybody listening to this who 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 don't fit into the rules of con- conventional education, don't see that as a disadvantage. It's about how do you utilize that gift? And I absolutely believe there's millions of people out there not utilizing that gift because they're made, they're, they're made to feel shame. Yeah. Yep. If you look at our look in in the UK, and I'm sure it's in the US. Actually, there's a lot of very clever dyslexic people in prisons, and uh, if those people those skills were put to great use, they could be really contributing to society. But because our educational system hasn't really found a way of um, utilizing the skills of these people. A lot of dyslexic people end up in society's dustbin heap. Yeah, well, and it's it's that challenge of trying to fit everybody into one sense of what what good and and intelligent looks like versus really trying to help people understand how to leverage their own skill and ability and uniqueness. Exactly, and it is that thing about this recognition that you know I am special. That is the key hmm. thing I think you need to drum into kids at a young age is that the one thing they need to accept and understand is that they are special and they have a special contribution to make rather than they have to fit in. It's just unfortunate we have a system where it's all about people fitting in rather than yeah. um, honoring their specialness. For sure. Um, well, so after your uh, kind of primary and secondary school, what, what was the rest of your journey? Where did it go okay, from there? So, um, I left school. And what I did was that because I wanted to get away from home, I joined the army. Now, one of the things I learned about joining the army is that if you're an entrepreneurial nature, joining the army was a massive mistake. <laughs> that, that is about sort of, you know, drilling out individuality. It's all about working as a team. It's all about following orders, entrepreneurialism, and army does not go together. I can totally see that. You know, so I didn't last very long. I mean, I got kicked out of, of the army because I was just too disruptive. I, you know, Oh, really? Yeah, very, very disruptive. And again, if the army, I think, could utilize that talent in terms – I'm an individualist, and it's a bit like, you know – I'm the sort of guy that if you, if, if you need an individualist to do something, impossible tasks, that is what I'm really good at. You know, my bosses later on discovered that actually if you want to get the best out of Wilfred, give him something really difficult and impossible to, to achieve because that is what actually drives me. Uh, well, so how did it impact you? How did it affect you getting kicked out of the army? What was your reaction to that? Well, you know, again, when I got kicked out of the army, it seemed as though I was on the course that was predicted for me that I would end up in prison because there wasn't many choices. But in this country, and I don't know whether it's the same in the US, if you were a failure at everything back then, the only option available to you um, was catering. So I oh, interesting. I went to the local catering college and then and trained to be a chef. And it wasn't, I mean, chefing was not a glamorous profession then as it is now. Then, you know, it was only the stupid, dumb people who worked in the kitchen because manual work was always seen to be the jobs of the, the less intelligent. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, I enjoyed working in, um, in, in uh, restaurants and loved it. But what was absolutely interesting, that as much as I loved being a chef, 
the promise that I made myself at 11 years old was always playing on my mind. And it was always saying to me, well, you know, you might enjoy this boy, but you're not going to earn enough money, you know, flipping burgers um, to buy a farm. You're going to have to get your act together. And um, at that time, there used to be a very popular TV program on in the UK. They made social documentaries, and I loved it so much. I thought, well, actually, I would like to make social documentaries. And so when I told my families and friends that I would like to go and work in television as a TV director, producer, they all laughed at me because, you know, A, I could, I could hardly read and write. B, TV at that time was very much the profession for the well-educated. What we say over here is the Oxbridge types, people who've been to the top university. How on earth could somebody like me with no education, also being black, you know, think that they could go and work in TV? But my father told me something, and I really, again, worked on these principles all of my life. And they would be what I call sort of American ideals and American sort of principles, is that it doesn't really matter what background you're from, what the color of your skin is, what education you have. You absolutely need two things. You only need two things to achieve anything that you want in life. And any successful person has these two things. The first thing is absolute ruthless focus. And uh, any successful athlete, any successful business will be absolutely focused to that goal. So that's the first thing. But equally, the second thing, which is even more important, is that you have to have passion. Now, passion is so, so important because passion actually helps you get over all the hurdles that comes your way. And I tend to say it's a bit like falling in love. You know when people fall in love in the, the, in the first heyday of falling in love? You know, reason doesn't prevail in that sort of environment, is that you're driven. You're absolutely driven. And it doesn't matter what anybody says, whatever problems that arises, that passion drives it. So yeah. we all, we've all experienced that passion. In terms of being successful in business, it's how do you find something and you galvanize that in whatever you do. Ruthless passion, because it's got, you've got to be able to decide, you've got to defy logic and reason. Because you'll always find somebody who will say, no, nah, you can't do this, or no, it'd be impossible. You'll always find hurdles, but it's the passion that will get you through those hurdles. I, I love those two principles. It, it focuses one that we spend a lot of time talking about because you, you're going to have so many distractions that want to take you in different directions, exactly. um, whether it's emotional distractions or relationship distractions or failure distractions. You're going to have all of these distractions that want to take you away from the goal you're working toward. Exactly. Um, and right. focus is that ability to just keep pushing toward that goal. I love that. And then the passion piece is so important. I think that where people sometimes fail on the passion piece is how to make it seen every day. So they have something that they like and they care about, but being able to embed it into their efforts every day. So it's this really is that combination between passion and focus. I love that. But when and and the passion passion is all consuming. I mean, that's why you I like the the, the falling in love analogy because it's all consuming. You know, sure. your whole life revolves around, it and therefore. It doesn't feel like it's a job. Um, it doesn't feel as though it's an effort because it's all-consuming. 
So I think it's really, really important that people understand that anyone who achieves anything has those two real combinations. Um, so with that, with those, I then, you know, I, I spent two years writing to people, knocking on the doors, hounding, hounding, hounding. If anybody said they worked in television, they became my, my best friend. I absolutely lived and breathed finding it. And then what I'm a great believer in is this. We have to find our guardian angels in life. But we have to find those people who help us on our journey, who help us up the ladder to achieve the things that we want. And I can remember after two years hounding, there was a guy, and I still remember his name now. His name was Jock Gallagher, and he worked at the BBC in Birmingham. <clears throat> and I happened to meet him uh, in a sort of canteen you know, and obviously I was telling him I was passionate to get a break in television. He, he um, took me up to his office and he talked to me for about an hour. And he says, look, you're not the sort of person that we tend to employ in TV because, A, you've got a bit of an attitude problem. <laughs> you're, you don't have the right education. But he said this. He said, look, he said he may live to regret the decision he's about to make. But he's going to give me a chance. He's going to give me a three-month contract. This is a general runner, which is doing all the rubbish jobs, sweeping up, uh, <clears throat> you know, doing everything that nobody wants. And that man, having the courage to give me that break, then started off a very long career in TV. So I went on from being just a general dog's body to being a researcher, to being a director, to being a producer. And I became a big name in the UK, making food programs. I ended up specialized making food programs. So in fact, I gave people like Gordon Ramsay his first break in television. Wow. Yeah, so, so it's probably he's the only chef you'd probably know internationally, but I gave him his first break. And, you know, a lot of chefs who are well known in the UK, I gave them their first break as well. And my boss at the time got me to in a sense, break these guys in because they, they were from the same side of the street as I am, really, which is that they were guys from working class backgrounds who were tough, who, you know, had to work their way up. And therefore, they needed someone equally as tough to be able to manage them and direct them because the particular types of people who work in TV would have been intimidated by them, whereas I was never intimidated because, you know, I was used to having to scrap things out if, if that was necessary to show who was in charge. And so sure, sure. many times I had to do that. So I traveled the world making programs about um, food. I've been to the States a couple of times all around your wonderful food re um, um, <clears throat> regions to do um, things. I did a, a wonderful program about soul food and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Oh, great. And I spent um, about 15 years doing that. But again, the dream that I had as an 11-year-old kid kept saying, look, you're running out of time fast. And if you want to get this farm, you're really going to have to get a grip. And I, television is a pretty glamorous um, life, but you don't really make much money out of it. And then I decided that I needed to go and form my own um, company because I knew by then that I wasn't really the sort of person that would be happy being employed by someone, having to fit in someone else's sort of um, rules. And uh, right. I decided that the only way I was ever going to stand any chance of getting me enough money to buy my own farm was to start my own business. 
I can remember um, deciding to leave the BBC. And this is quite, this is another important part of my story. And again, this is probably where a lot of people will face the same problem. I can remember having enough money to pay my mortgage for three months. After three months, I would have run out of money and I would not have had a penny. And I just know that there's a lots and lots of people out there who would really love to do their own thing. And the one thing that stops them doing it is fear. Fear yeah. of when it goes wrong. And fear is people's jailers. Fear is what people keep people in prison. So they end up with unfulfilled lives. Because this thing we were talking earlier on about this need for certainty, when certainty is not there, it's yep. I knew that actually I had no other choice but to make it work. And there is nothing again. You can't do things like that unless you are absolutely focused. You're focused that you, you live and breathe trying to make this thing work. And, you know, it, it just consumes you. And that is what I did. And again, I managed to find people who saw that I was hungry, in a sense, I was desperate and I was prepared to work hard to um, achieve what I wanted to achieve. So they gave me a break. They gave me a helping hand to give it a difference. Oh, wonderful. And that's how I do it. So I would never, ever be where I am today unless I, I met a number of these guardian angels around. And there's something wonderful about the human spirit. It does like to give people opportunities. I mean, all too often we focus on, you know, the negative side of our humanity. But actually, some of the greatest things that have happened to me are through kindness from people. And you don't know why, but there's, you've obviously, one touches something in them that makes them put themselves out of the way to help you up the ladder. Yeah, well, and, and on the other side, I mean, you had to take steps to put yourself in that position as well to be helped, you know, exactly. on your on your journey, right? Not just be helped out of poverty, but to be helped on your journey, you had to be taking steps to put yourself in that position also. Exactly. So I think that's a really good way of putting it. So, you know, I then started to build that business. And after about 12 years, I then built that business. So I had enough money to buy my own farm. So it took me 30 years from the moment that I had that dream to be in the position by that farm. And, and you never lost sight of it. I mean, out of those 30 years, you, you always had that as kind of a, a driver behind your actions. Always, always. And I can remember the day when I was standing in one of my fields and I just felt the moment when I completed the circle. And that yeah. is a wonderful, satisfying moment in our lives when you feel you found that you completed the, the, the circle. The irony is that it only lasts for a moment. <laughs> you know, I then move on, you move on to other things, but it's really satisfying to have completed that circle. 30, oh, yeah, I can imagine. 30 years it took. And so having bought the farm, one of the things that I wanted to do was that I wanted to launch my own brand, my own food brand. And I'd spent years marketing other people's brands. And that, you know, it's always a challenge working for someone else because all too often you're limited by the courage of the people you're working with. And the more corporate the organization, the more um, risk averse they become. And people want things without being prepared to put their head above the sort of parapet. 
And um, I've always worked on the basis that really all business models around the world fit into one of three things. You're either a business because what you're offering is cheaper, and to be cheaper, you've actually come up with a business model, which means that you found some way of, you know, stripping out costs so you could actually offer something really, really cheap. Uh-huh. Or um, another one is that you're better, so you uh, you you're not about price, but you're about great service. That it's re- it's a better thing that that you give. Right. And the third one is that you're different. So when you look at your business, I say to people, answer yourself, which one, which one of those three are you? You'll either be cheaper, better, or different. Yeah. Everything about my business is about being different. And it's all, yeah. A, as an individual, as a brand, so it helps me to focus everything that I do. How does it fit into that thing about being different? And um, so I decided I wanted to do um, create my own food brand, and I want something that was going to be different, that was challenging, that was going to get make people stand up and think, "Whoa, now this is sort of different." And I I decided I was going to create a brand called the Black Farmer. Where for Americans it may seem, "Well, what's so unique about that?" Well, I'm the only black farmer in the whole of the UK. No, oh, really? Wow! Unique about it. So the idea of the black farmer in the UK is so, so, so different. It freaks people out. They think, what? <laughs> it's coaching. So in America, they just think, what is unique about that? But in the UK, there are no black farmers at all. So for someone to boldly wow. call themselves a black farmer, to have a farm down in Devon is so outside the stereotype, so unusual. It obviously gains attention. Oh my gosh. I, lo- I love that story. I love how this theme of being different and unique continued to surface throughout your life and then how you just embraced it the whole time, especially to this point where you had complete control of the brand that you created and yet you chose to embrace this difference and uniqueness as part of that brand. I love that. And so that is the key thing. And so you could imagine that in the UK, then you got a lot of attention and it, you, you can, you know, it's, it's, it's all well and good being different, but you've got to offer a really good product. And so mine is a great product. So take that as, as read. That is fantastic what we offer. And then it's all about then the message of sort of different. And everything about me is very, very different, really, because, um, you know, I'm black. I have a farm. You know, the way that I speak. I mean, you know, people would think that I'm sort of landed gentry um, by, you know, the way that I dress, the way that I behave. It is so different to where I started. So huh. from, from, from when I grew up, I knew that to end up where I wanted to be, I would have to change. And that's what I did. So everything that I am now is self-created in terms of that then allowed me to um, be what I want. And now I'm able to go back into my community and offer opportunities. So, you know, I get people who, again, who were like me, like that young kid who were desperate for an opportunity to come with me because I'm now in the position to offer help, to give guidance about what they need to do, and also to give encouragements that actually you can be from society's dustbin heap and you can make a change through your life because fundamentally it is down to you and the attitude that you have. It's simple as that. 
and uh, you know, there's no greater magic to it than that. And uh, that's one of the things in terms of what gives me pleasure in my life is how I could help people on their journey. There's nothing. I'm not driven by money or how much money I make. You know, I want to have a comfortable living. But the thing that really gives me value and a sense of purpose is the fact of the impact that I'm making in other people's lives. And yeah, I love I it. I think was it Myla Angelou who said that you know when we think about our legacies, you know, our legacy really, it's about how many people's lives have we touched. And yes, you know, I just love you know hearing stories about people who may have met me. 10, 15 years ago, and I'd said a kind word or I said something and it, it, it actually triggered something in them. It did something to help them on their sort of journey. And that, you know, I, I feel um, that um, having got really close to um, dying, as I said, when I got um, really seriously ill three years ago, and then I really looked at what really matters to me. One is to make sure that my children are confident and have um, an authenticity and a certainty about themselves so they could decide to do whatever they want to do and not live their life in fear. And then the other thing to do is to do my bit in sort of helping to touch people's lives. And that really is about sharing my experiences, my wisdom, my encouragement to help them on their journey. Well, and you have such a a great story and such great insights. Um, Thank you so much. I love it. Okay. So I, I'm curious, um, just one kind of final thought, if you could add an insight, is for that person who's maybe you know one or two years into their journey and they're not uh, to the place where they hope that they uh, can get, what would you tell them at that point where they're maybe a couple of years, they feel like they've been giving a lot to it, but they're not quite there yet? What piece of advice would you give? Well, the thing about the journey is this. It's always the thing about people like me who made it, people look at it and think, wow, um, but what they don't sort of realize is that there are many dark clouds on the way. Uh, and it's about, there's many sort of what I call midnight hours. And there are many times when, you know, you you sort of feel as though you're going to sort of um, lose faith. Those will happen. You know, part of achieving your journeys, that time will happen. And therefore, you know, you've just got to sort of roll with it. And I say to people this that um, in the first five years, what if you're serious about business, what you need to do is this, is that try and go and visit someone in intensive care in hospital. Because what you will see mm. when you go and visit somebody in intensive care is all that energy and all that effort going in to make that person survive. And the first five years in business is exactly the same is that you've got to put so much intensity, so much focusing to make it survive. And that it is like a child, is that as a child starts to get stronger and develop, you know, it then gives you a lot of freedom. But the first, the first part is really tough, difficult, and that is what it's going to take. That is why you need focus and passion. Uh, it's yeah. a bit like a woman giving birth. The pain and the agony that is suddenly transferred in a moment once it's delivered is really what it's like, you know, giving birth to a prisoner. You know, it is 
you know, it does take it out of you. It's not, it's not going to be pain free. Yeah. I love the parallel. Thanks so much. Um, so if people are uh, in your neck of the woods, where might they find the Black Farmer products? Well, we're available um, on um, in all the retail shops. But for your listeners, one of the things I'm going to be doing in 2018 is launching the Black Farmer Coffee. Oh, great. Um, which is actually going to be for export. I'm going to be um, importing the, the coffee from um, the Caribbean and um, uh, and Africa. And um, the whole purpose behind this brand, really, is going to be about trying to give, you know, coffee that gives the farmers a fighting chance. Uh, that um, it's really trying to help these communities get beyond aid, where their existence is not reliant on aid, um, from us in the in, in the West. And so um, this brand, the, the Black Farmer Coffee, will be available late 2018, and then it will be able to buy that online. And um, one of the things I've been desperate to do is to get the Black Farmer brand in, in the U.S., because I think a black Englishman in, in, in the U.S. surely must have some um, potential in that. I would love to, you know, do something there. Oh, I can definitely see it. I'm going to be waiting for it. Um, so I know people can find you at theblackfarmer.com, and I assume they can kind of follow this journey as you get ready to launch the coffee brand. Yeah, exactly. And follow me on Facebook and and all the you know the, the relevant sort of social media things. So you know, and people do keep in touch because I think we're in the day and age where um, um, founders, chief execs should no longer sort of hide behind an army of people. I read all of my emails. I read all of my social media and I answer them. I keep in touch with the people who are responsible for making my business successful. So, you know, do say to them that they're called welcome to email me or, you know, leave a comment on my social media page. I, I do like to interact with people. Wonderful. Well, Wilfred, thank you so much for sharing your story and all of your insights. I know the audience is going to love it, and I really appreciate your time. Okay. Well, thank you very much, and it was really nice speaking to you.